Amen. Our passage this morning is a short one. It comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. I'd recommend for you to take a Bible in your hands. You're going to be needing it this morning. Even though we have a very short verse this morning, we're kind of going to be flipping through a number of passages throughout the Bible. So it'll be good for you to have a Bible in hand. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles which are in front of you. If you're new to Christianity, I can kind of help navigate you around uh, through the sermon. But we, this morning, our passage comes from Exodus 20, verse 14. And it's very short. And it says, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Now, in every era of world history, uh, marriage and sex has always been fraught with pain and brokenness and sin. I don't think there's been an era that's been exempt from that. And yet it is true that we live in a time in our culture where it's just awash with sexual titillation. We have the ability to carry with us in our pockets instant, anonymous access to sexual sin. Sexual sin is more acceptable today and more even celebrated than in the past. What's more, our culture writes its own script when it comes to sex and sexuality. Marriage, sex, Sexuality is, these days, whatever you want it to be, whatever you make it to be. It's self-determined. The result has been that any norms for sexual behaviors, any kind of uh, one-size-fits-all moral ethic for sex and sexuality has been erased, or it's at least eroding. So you can... Divorce if you like, and you can marry however you like. Nothing wrong with premarital sex or masturbation. It's hateful to say that homosexuality is a sin. Which makes the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery with both its narrow and expansive applications seem like the most obsolete and oppressive of all the Bible's teachings. A good case can be made that the seventh commandment is probably the command most out of step with the spirit of our age. Yet, lest we be tempted as a church to feel some sort of moral superiority, those who profess to be Christians are almost as out of step with the ethics of the seventh commandment as the world. That wasn't me, I don't think. Recent surveys found that 44% of millennials who call themselves Christians have had sex outside of marriage. Another survey says 77% of Christian men aged 18 to 35, look at pornography at least once a month. 
And 35% of Christians have had an affair. So the problem is not out there, is it? It's not out there. It's in the church. It's here. It's with us. It's with you. It's with me. Our culture is cruising at a high speed along the highway of sexual revolution and carrying many of us in the church along with it. And the seventh commandment comes to us and it says, stop. Powerful message. I really don't think that's me, is it? It really is. All right. <clears throat> well, there it is. The seventh commandment is a powerful, powerful commandment. But the seventh commandment is telling us that there is a better way. It is a divine GPS telling us, don't go down that highway. Stop it. Turn around. Make a U-turn. Because God has something more beautiful and better designed for you. The way that you're going is down a path of destruction. That's what the seventh commandment tells us. So we all need the seventh commandment. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been making our way through the Ten Commandments. And recently, we've been going through the second table of the law. Now, if you remember, the first table of the law is about loving God. And the second table of the law is about loving our neighbors. And now that we're in the second table of the law with the fifth commandment, we are told to honor. Honor our elders. Love father and mother. Honor them. Honor life. Do not murder. And now today, with the seventh commandment, it says, honor marriage. Honor marriage. Do not commit adultery. Now, hearing, of course, such a command, Christians are accused of being just kind of prudish or maybe phobic about sex and sexuality, too uptight, maybe too puritanical, right? Some hear it as a, another weapon that Christians use uh, that, that just to be these great killjoys, you know, who like to equate holiness with misery. But if you trace the teaching of scripture on sex and marriage carefully enough, you'll find that it is not so much restrictive or a buzzkill. The seventh commandment offers something incredibly beautiful and liberating. So here's what I want to do this morning. First, I want us to see the beauty of marriage. I think we need to get a grasp and a, a handle of what marriage is so that we can properly understand the significance of this commandment. Second, I want us to look at the heart of adultery, and I'll conclude with the hope for the sexually broken. So first, the beauty of marriage. The beauty of marriage. The seventh commandment calls God's people not to commit adultery. What is adultery? Simply put, it is marital infidelity. It is sexual intercourse that breaks the bonds of a marriage covenant. So, positively speaking, what this commandment is saying, the purpose of this commandment is protect marriage. Protect marriage. In fact, marriage is of such importance that later on in Leviticus, Moses explains that anyone who is caught in adultery is to be put to death. That's how important marriage is. So what is the big deal about marriage? Well, turn with me 
back a couple pages, probably to page 2 in your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Follow along with me here, where we see God's very good creation of marriage. 2.18 says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so if you skip down a little bit, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the creation template for marriage and sexuality in Genesis 2. Uh, the, the goodness and design that God has for humanity is seen in, these, in this opening chapter of Scripture. And we see a couple things that God created male and female. Uh, these aren't arbitrary or plastic paradigms. And we see that God made a helper fit for Adam. God didn't create another animal or another Adam, but woman. She is called woman because she was taken out of man. God called these two together to complement one another, that they might be emotionally, spiritually, and physically compatible. And what is celebrated in this passage is that they might become one flesh. Now, certainly that means a lot of things. Certainly that includes the, the, the covenant commitment they are making to one another, that they are seen by God as one. But it also is talking about sexual union between husband and wife. So one implication that we get from these opening chapters in Genesis is that sex is good. Sex is good because God created it. The physical union between a husband and a wife is God's idea. And God says to Adam, go, cleave to your wife, be fruitful, and multiply. You know, when it comes to sex, we should really thank God for the Puritans. We really should. Because in various times in history, sex was viewed only for procreation. You know, Augustine said, oh, sex is fine, but... Any passion in your marriage is sinful. Uh, Roman Catholics would say, oh, priests, you know, if you want to achieve a higher elevation of spirituality, you remain unmarried and you don't have sex. The Roman Catholic Church prohibits sex on certain holy days, but the Puritans, they glorified compassionate romantic marriages. They affirm sex should be passionately enjoyed within marriage. So Puritan William Gouge, he writes, married couples should engage in sex with goodwill and delight. Delight. Matthew Henry exhorted husbands, desire the innocent and pleasant conversation of thy own wife. Let her lie in thy bosom, and do thou repose thy head in hers, 
and let that satisfy thee at all times and seek not for pleasure in any other. I think we should hear that and say, yeah, we need to get more puritanical with our sex. But really, they were just being biblical because the Bible has incredible passages about the joy of sex. You only need to read the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, to see that. And while God's word is not pornographic, it is unashamedly erotic. The Bible sees sex not merely as procreational, but also relational, and sometimes recreational. Sex is for love, for pleasure, for joy. But the other implication we see from Genesis here is that sex is to be enjoyed only in the context of marriage. The two are inextricably linked. Sexual intimacy, the one flesh union, is the deepest uniting of two persons. It seals the bonds of matrimony. It's what Tim Keller calls the covenantal cement. It helps hold a marriage secure. So to tear sex from its context in marriage is to shatter its meaning and rob it of its value. That's why the application of the seventh commandment is far more expansive than just cheating on your spouse. It prohibits any sexual gratification apart from marriage. Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians 7-9 that this wonderful thing called sex should find its place in a marriage. It's the physical capstone of an emotional, spiritual union in a lasting covenant. Because we aren't animals. We are made in the image of God. Sex isn't something we bandy about to fulfill some animalistic urge within us. No, sex has roots and branches that penetrates all of our being and affects all of our being, and therefore it is to be had in the context and framework of marriage. That's why, if you're dating, and you go on vacation together, you don't stay overnight in the same hotel room. Because you don't want, as the Apostle says, sexual immorality even to be named among you. It's why in dating relationships, you avoid any sexual awakening, touching, and kissing. Those things are called foreplay. They are meant to lead some way. They are meant to lead to sex. Some have said, oh, you know, like, if we just rub up on each other, whatever, it's like, it's no big deal. Like, we're not, we're not having sex. We're just kissing. And I think that's just crazy talk. Those things are meant to lead somewhere. If sex is like glue, then squeezing it out at the wrong time or in the wrong place always creates a mess. When the wrong things get joined together, getting them unstuck again tears at the soul. Some of you know this. Some of you have experienced this. That's why adultery is forbidden. Sex is a great force for good, but only when it is used to join one man and one woman for life in covenant commitment. But there is a more profound meaning when it comes to marriage. Turn with me into your New Testament to Ephesians 5, 
We've been alluding to it this morning, even in some of our prayers. Ephesians chapter 5. You can find that on page 979 in those Black Pew Bibles. Ephesians 5.31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Look, he's quoting from Genesis. He's talking about the blueprint of marriage, and he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible what he's saying? He's saying that God created the institution of marriage to give the world a covenantal relationship by which they can understand Christ and his love for the church. You see, it's not flipped the other way around. It's not like Paul searching for a metaphor. No, God created marriage so that that would be the metaphor. Husband and wife are the shadow. Jesus and the church are the substance. This is why sexual intimacy is sacred. This is why casual sex is a contradiction in terms. Because marriage and sex in God's purpose is a picture of the gospel of grace. When husbands and wives give themselves over to one another holding nothing back. It shows how God gives himself to us. And this is why when, whenever God talks about his people and his relationship with them, he talks about them like, I'm your husband. And when God talks to them, and when they are straying away from him, he calls them unfaithful and adulterous people. Marriages are meant to put the gospel on display. Covenant marriages speak to the covenant love of God. So adultery is serious, not just because it hurts other people or because it undermines the stability of the family, but sexual immorality violates Christ. It disfigures the gospel. Christian husbands and wives, your marriage is meant to put the gospel on display. You might come to the seventh commandment and you might think to yourself, well, I didn't have premarital sex and I'm not committing adultery, so I'm kind of okay with this commandment. But that would fall far short of what this commandment is all about. It's about honoring marriage. It's about displaying Christ's love for the church. You are to love your spouse and not merely live with your spouse. Christ doesn't just live with you. He loves you. Right? That's what you're picturing. So husbands, do you love your wives with all purity? Do you serve her? Do you serve her in the bedroom? Do you lead with tenderness and thoughtfulness at great cost to yourself that Christ might be exalted? And wives, will you submit to your husband? Not as doormats, but out of reverence for Christ. Do you respect your husband and love one another that Christ might be all in all? There is indeed a deep and rich and gospel-saturated meaning to marriage, and it is to be protected. It is to be honored. Second, let's look at the heart of adultery. The heart of adultery. 
Given what we understand about marriage and sex, it's clear that there are numerous avenues of application here. Certainly, polygamy is a compromise of the marriage covenant, as is prostitution or incest or pedophilia, uh, rape, bestiality, divorce, depriving one another of sex in marriage, homosexuality. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul walks actually through the second table of the law. Pastor Daniel was preaching through that a couple weeks ago. And he applies the seventh commandment to the sexually, to the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. But as always, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. So turn with me to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 27. Um, Pastor Ryan is actually going to be preaching through these verses this evening at our Sunday evening fellowship, so I'm not going to get too much into the details here. But if you're looking for that passage, it's on page 810 in those Black Pew Bibles. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Listen to what Jesus says. Adultery, sexual sin, is a matter of the heart. What he's saying is that even if you don't commit the physical act with sexual organs, you can still be guilty of sexual sin by means of your thoughts or your fantasies or your desires and affections. Jesus says that the root of adultery is lust. Now, lust is not merely sexual desire. And lust is not noticing a general recognition of another person's attractiveness. Uh, noticing that somebody is handsome or beautiful is not sin. Rather, lust is sexual desire gone wrong. It's a corruption of sexual desire. It's a leer. It's that lingering look that dishonors its object and disregards God. Leland Reichen says, it's the problem of looking at someone in a way that leads to sexual arousal, looking at a person as an object to satisfy our desire. Jen Wilkins says, lust itself is an act of contempt, reducing someone to a source of sexual gratification and nothing more. It's seeing our neighbor as consumable. I would put it this way. It's a disordered sexual desire that defiles those made in the image of God, your neighbor. No adults have escaped, therefore, the seventh commandment. No one leaves the seventh commandment. No adults leave this unscathed. You are probably sitting right now next to someone who lusted last night. 
All of us are adulterers in the heart, men and women alike. Sure, it's true that men predominantly struggle with lust. The male eye, somehow, is like a magnet in its attraction to excessive female skin or tantalizing gaps in clothing or featured bodily shapes through tight clothing. Yet women, too, feed their lust by imagining sexual possibilities, fantasizing, erotica. And Jesus says in verse 30 that when it comes to the issue of lust, he says heaven and hell are at stake. If you don't fight lust, he basically says, you will not go to heaven. Again, there are many areas we could address, but let me focus on one since I'm, I feel like I'm short on time here. Let me focus on one thing when it comes to our adulterous hearts, and that is pornography. I'm not going to address the issue of movies and TV shows, which I think hold forth a more socially acceptable feast for the eyes. Uh, movies and TV shows do much the same thing to our spiritual vision as porn. It normalizes disorder. It kind of glamorizes uh, sexual promiscuity or sex without commitment. But pornography goes further and is more entangling. And porn is essentially looking at or fantasizing sexually about men or women other than your spouse. Again, porn is an issue for men, but it is also for women. And Pornhub is one of the top-ranking porn sites in the world with 42 billion visits in 2019. 115 million views a day. And in its 2019 annual review, it was reported that the worldwide average for women viewers, 32%. According to Covenant Eyes, an internet software filter, there is a generational gap among women. While millennial women use porn less frequently, Generation Z women, those born in 1997 or after, are most affected. And the number one consumers of erotica, like Fifty Shades of Grey, or fan fiction, are women. Porn, therefore, is the norm. But there are two main problems with porn. First of all, it's unloving. It's unloving. It's unloving to the men and women who are involved in it. It endorses their behaviors. And it's unloving towards future husbands and wives. It destroys a person's capacity to love another purely for just who they are. So let me speak briefly to the men here. When you engage in pornography, you're training yourself to need increasingly different, strange, erotic situations and bodies. That's what you're doing. You make it harder to be content with the real body of the woman who is your wife or who will be your wife. Porn denigrates women. It destroys your spiritual ability to lead. And so, ladies, if you're dating a man who has zero desires to kill his porn addiction, 
if he's a regular and consistent and has a consistent pattern of struggling with porn, I think it's a deal breaker to move forward, to keep moving forward. He's unloving. Do you want to marry this unloving person? A life overrun by porn lies about God. It says Christ is not sufficient. A life overrun by porn with no self-control, a man who allows his carnal desires to rule his life is not a man who is spiritually mature enough to take responsibility of your marriage. John Piper writes, I think we have lowered the bar too much. We have treated men like dogs in heat rather than men who are created in the image of God and who have the Holy Spirit, whose fruit is love, joy, and self-control. Men are not victims, and women have a right to expect more from us. Pornography is unloving. But what's more, porn ravages your soul. Puritan Thomas Watson rightly said that pornographic pictures secretly convey poison to the heart. Men and women, please hear me. The porn is destructive to your soul. Yes, it's sin against your spouse. Yes, you've, when you look at it, you're undermining, you will, your spouse will feel a deep sense of betrayal. But it is a sin against God. It clouds your capacity to see God, your ability to see the purity and greatness of his glory. All those things will only shrivel. You won't be able to delight in God the way that he wants you to delight in him and all the gifts that he has for you in, in his word and in his world. So you must fight. You must fight. Adultery and lust is not something that we just manage. It's something we kill. Which brings me to our last point this morning. The hope for the sexually broken. Many of you are dealing with the seventh commandment in all sorts of ways or different ways. Perhaps you come from a family um, where your parents have committed adultery. Or maybe some of you are mired in masturbation, or others of you are consistently lured by lust. We can talk about all the right responses to those things, and I think there are answers to those things. We can talk about all the ways we can set up internet filters getting accountability and making sure we have accountability. But we cannot place our hope in those measures. We need something more. We know the draw and the power of, of sex. How do we move that out of being the center of our heart? We must have something greater, a greater desire that will expel those distorted ones. So for those of you who are well aware of the pain of sexual immorality, for those of you who know your sin in the past or even in the present in this area, and you hate what you've done, and hate what you've become of your life and your patterns, 
and you understand that your iniquities are higher than your head and that there are no ways that you can, there's no possible way that you can bear all that burden and wipe it away. Hear this, that God gives grace to sinners who repent of their lust and follow Jesus Christ. There is hope. Listen to what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul writes, he says, the scriptures are unambiguous here. He's, he's saying it's condemning all sorts of breaches of the seventh commandment. And, but that's not all he says. He says right then in the next verse, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So is there hope for you? Have you gone too far in your dating relationships? Have you been enslaved to your lustful appetites? Do you struggle with same-sex attraction? Are you sexually broken like the rest of mankind? Then yes, there's hope for you. Absolutely, there's hope for you. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God offers forgiveness to lusty sinners. Forgiveness. Grace. So will you not turn again to Him? Or perhaps, for the first time today, turn to Him? Because God gives something more than just forgiveness. He gives you His Spirit. And by His Spirit, He gives you grace in the time of temptation. Day by day, the Spirit produces self-control by revealing the beauties of Christ to your soul. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. It's to point you and direct you to Jesus Christ and His glory. Day by day, as you look to Christ, awestruck by the direct experiences of his glory, his patience, his meekness, his love, his mercy, you put to death the deeds of the body. That's how it happens. This is what the Puritan calls the expulsive power of a new affection. It is this affection and vision and love for Christ that drowns out the distortion of lust. So delight yourself in, so if you were to delight yourself in lawlessness, then you will be, your disordered desires will govern you. But if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you new desires. And just as we had in this, for our call to worship this morning out of Revelation you know that the battle will be worth it. Your battle for purity, your works of righteousness is worth it. Because one day Jesus, the bridegroom, will return. And every eye that has demeaned those made in the image of God shall rest its gaze on the Son of God. No longer will anybody objectify or exploit his neighbor. And you will stand with eyes filled with health and hearts filled with light. The final faithful marriage, of which all others have been a whisper, will take place in purity and 
power. So while we wait, while we wait, let us fight for purity that we might see our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which uh, once again does work upon our hearts, exposing us and driving us to a solution. So, Father, we pray that we would not run to broken cisterns that can hold no water, but that we would run to Christ who gives us living water. O oh Lord, we pray that in our brokenness we would look to Christ and love him more and go deeper in affection towards him. That we might grow in our sanctification, grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.